It's Daily Thunder, booming out the truth of Jesus Christ live every weekday morning from the Ellerslie campus in Windsor, Colorado. To learn more, visit ellerslie.com. So this is episode 38, and sort of sad to say, but the final episode uh, in this series, uh, it's a series called Spiritual Lessons from Black and White America. And I don't know that I can say I've gone through a series quite like this one. Uh, This has been a very uh, emotional, challenging series. I think a lot of uh, the feedback that I've gotten from around the world is uh, that it is probably the most difficult series to go through, but not because that's a bad statement. It's actually a very, very important one. But it's just because of what we're touching on. We're touching on certain issues that we're not supposed to talk about. And we're supposed to just say, nothing to see here, keep walking. And whenever you go into those issues, it can be rough, but it's also the same with our soul. When we have an attitude like, hey, I'm not going to allow the Spirit of God to touch that, no, 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 nothing to see here, then there's a compacting of sin that can take place in our life and of hurt and of trauma, different things that lead to uh, behavioral breakdown. But when we allow the Spirit of God to touch us in those areas where we would prefer that he doesn't go, but we allow him and we trust him to go there, he brings healing. And that's my desire in and through a series like this. And who knows, you know, I've even had the thought that maybe even if in my first giving of it, nothing happens, and yet someone listens to this series 10 years from now and it's just like strikes them right where they need it and it's a significant person in history because there's some nuggets in this that if someone could take these, I mean, I'm, I desire to take this myself but sometimes you feel very uh, lackluster in your ability to influence the world and that's the way I feel and I'm guessing you might feel the same. It's like, so say I wake up, say I see clearly on some of these things, what does that mean? And I think that's part of what it means to be a Christian, is that we put the responsibility of world change on Jesus, and we're responsible for agreeing with his change in our life. That we say, start here, Lord. And even if the ripple effect seems very smallish at first, when one person is willing to stand, when one person is willing to agree with the truth, when one person is is willing to represent the truth in their world, even if it goes contrary to the world in which they live, things change. And that's the marvelous truth for all of us to recognize. So part 38, Watergate. Uh, It sort of rhymes, guys. I I like that. Uh, So very uncreative title. I've been saying from the beginning that this is a 60-year period from World War I to Watergate, 1914 to 1974. And so to finish my last One is called Watergate. Sounds almost like you could have guessed that in the beginning. And so, which is all the more reason for me to give a creative title. Uh, The paranoid president was actually what I was uh, flirting with, but I ended up with just the simple, just like Cuban Missile Crisis, is like, let's just call it what it is. This is an event in history that has so defined us and is a big part of our world today. And most of us have really no clue what it is. And that's because it's very complex. It's the type of thing that legal experts know about and the public is just sort of watching and all they see is uh, people saying, making accusations and other people saying that's not true. And it feels sort of like a lot of our 
challenges today in politics where people make a lot of noise and they accuse people of things. And when you're in the the sheep mode that we're in, you know, where you're just sort of sitting there staring back going, I have no idea what they're talking about, but I'm sure the bad guy is the liberal and the good guy is the conservative. You know, and that's a classic conservative perspective. It's the same thing. You flip it, and if you're a liberal and you, there's an argument, you're always going to side with the one that has your persuasion. And it's somewhat of a dangerous conclusion to come to. And our country, if there's anything you could learn from our history in this 60 years, is that whether you're conservative or liberal, that doesn't necessarily mean you're right. Or you're right with God. And that's an important thing for us to remember. As I'm going through this, and this is probably important for this one since this one is going to touch on some political territory, is though I lean conservative, I've approached this entire series in what I would call the neutral mode or uh, where I do not want to be a conservative or look at it through a Republican lens, nor do I want to look at it through a liberal or a Democrat lens. I'm interested in looking at it through a biblical lens, through a Christian lens. And I feel like that's what our country needs more than anything is to get rid of this nonsense, which is creating a division amongst us. And for instance, as a believer, my job is to win people to Christ. And oftentimes the biggest group that I need to be winning to Christ are on the opposite side of the ledger maybe spitting at me, maybe you know, calling me names. It's like my whole goal is to win them for Christ. How am I going to do that? By spitting back? No, by loving, by receiving the spittle on my cheek and saying, I forgive you. In other words, it's by living in such a way that I model Jesus Christ, not model a political persuasion. Watergate. So this is going to be, a, I, I have simplified this down. If you guys do a deep dive and a study on this event in history, there's a lot more to it. And so I almost want to apologize in the beginning for saying, sorry that this is going to be so skim milk compared to what the event is. Most of the event really doesn't matter, but it's fascinating for those that like to get into that type of stuff because it's going to be over multiple years that this is going to happen. Richard Nixon a man desperate to win the presidency. So in this time period, we, the last few messages, Richard Nixon has actually been president. I haven't been talking about him. He's going to be elected in 1968. And then so he's going to have you know, come into his presidency in 69. And that's the period of time. We're right in the thick of the uh, Vietnam War at that time. But so we're going to go right back to that uh, season that we're about to enter into America right now, which is the uh, presidential debates and uh, the, the, the election process, which I know all of us are very excited to go back into. Uh, it's just one of our favorite times in America. But that's where that we're at, and we're, so we're going to be in 1968. There's uh, Richard Nixon in a very good mood. He's, uh, they have a lot of pictures of him where he's not going to be in a very good mood, uh, too. So the key issue in the 68 presidential campaign is the Vietnam War. Now, I didn't go into the Vietnam War, uh, and that's part of my tactical decisions as I was going down the, the wire here going, okay, I have limited time. And some of you could say, but you, you did uh, Agnes Scott versus Princeton, uh, you know, in some uh, G, GE college bowl, but you didn't do Vietnam. It's like, you have to recognize this, this whole thing has been so heavy to do Vietnam, the assassination of President Kennedy. The assa I mean, there's so many things I'm skipping over, partly due to the fact that they are conspiracy driven. And I'm really not interested in distracting us with some of these things. But then 
Also partly because if it's not necessary to teach us a spiritual lesson, I'm gonna skip it. The Vietnam War is a very depressing subject and it's hard to extract. If, if some of you are like, hey, would you ever think of doing spiritual lessons from the Vietnam War? No. No, I'm not thinking about doing that. I have no interest in doing that. That is not an, at all attractive to me. And it's a very hard one because what you see is a lot of what we were building on is the advancement of communism in the world. When they start moving into Vietnam, Americans feel like there needs to be a response. We can't just allow this encroachment of communism around the world, so we make that our point of contention. And it's is going to be a disaster in the making. But I'm not going to go into that at any level, but that you'll at least understand the basis of what the politicians are thinking. And then the people are going to start to retaliate in our country with the anti-war movement. And that's the 60s in a nutshell. So Ken Hughes says this, the final month of the 1968 campaign was dominated by rumors and leaks that President Lyndon Johnson was on the verge of announcing the start of peace talks and a halt to American bombing in North Vietnam. Nixon saw his lead over Herbert Humphrey in the Gallup poll, 15 points at the start of the fall campaign, cut nearly in half to eight points by mid-October and shrink all the way to two points by the final weekend of the campaign. In the Harris poll, Humphrey actually pulled ahead. So Nixon has a lead, and it looks like he's going to be a fairly easy winner, and then his lead begins to decrease. Part of it has to do with, he's running against a guy named Herbert Humphrey. The current president is Lyndon Johnson, but Lyndon Johnson has declared that he is not going to run in the 68 election, so he is done with his presidency right here. But he's going, he wants to finish strong to sort of hand off the baton to Herbert Humphrey. And so what Lyndon Johnson is laboring to do so that he could be remembered better is he wants to bring peace and the closure to the Vietnam War as his final salvo, as his final movement. And it looks like he's going to be able to do this. And yet there is someone who is fighting against him being able to do that. And his name is Richard Nixon. See, Richard Nixon doesn't want there to be peace in Vietnam, even though he's going to act like he does, because if that peace is negotiated by Lyndon Johnson, guess who's not going to be elected president? Richard Nixon. So, by the way, this is called uh, <clears throat> betrayal of a country. However, no one knows about it. So Nixon must stop these peace talks. His election to the presidency depends on it. Richard Nixon is going to say this publicly. We all hope in this room that there's a chance that current negotiations may bring an honorable end to that war. And we will say nothing during this campaign that might destroy that chance. That's his public statement. His private actions are much different. Ken Hughes says, secretly, however, Nixon urged South Vietnam to boycott the peace talks even if North Vietnam agreed to them. Ken Hughes says, President Johnson announced a bombing halt in Vietnam and the start of peace talks in which South Vietnam was free to participate in a nationally televised address on October 31st, 1968. Now, you guys do know that Super Tuesday is right in the beginning of November. So you see when all of this is happening. And I mean, everything about politics, you know, smells of a rat, right? Every, whichever glasses you have on, if you're Republican, then you're like, oh, out of all the times to be looking for peace talks or is right now. However, if you're a president and this is your final thing that you're going to be able to accomplish, it is, you have to admit, 
a pretty extraordinary accomplishment. And Nixon can't have this. Ken Hughes says, two days later on the Saturday before the election, President Thieu publicly announced, that's from Vietnam, announced that the South would not attend the peace talks. That same day, the FBI wiretap reported Anna Cheneau uh, telling Ambassador Diem that she had received a message from her boss, not further identified, which is going to be identified as Nixon, which her boss wanted to, her to give personally to the ambassador. She said the message was that the ambassador is to hold on. We are going to win. So basically to say, don't enter into peace talks now. When Nixon comes in, he's going to side with the South. And we're, so we're going to win means they're going to win the election. Hold off on the peace talks. Don't do it beforehand. <clears throat> so President Lyndon Johnson, this is a private uh, conversation that no, the public doesn't know about. That's what's fun about history is you get all these private conversations and you can actually see behind the scenes later. This is treason, said President Lyndon Johnson. I know was Everett Dirksen, Senate Minority Leader, who was a Republican, by the way. The threat that lingers in the air. Two can play at this game. So, guys, I hate to bring us into politics, but uh, here's Lyndon Johnson. So Lyndon knows exactly what has, Nixon has done, and it's going to sabotage Herbert Humphrey's uh, opportunity to win the presidency. Nixon is going to win because of this. And so President Lyndon Johnson, as he's leaving office, is going to make mention to Nixon we know of your communication with you. Okay, that's, and remember, I, I was going to name this the paranoid president. Nixon is paranoid. He was paranoid before this, but this is going to make him very, very paranoid because of something else that's going to begin to happen. And it's called the Pentagon Papers. So we have a long history of dealing as a government with Vietnam. And there's a whole bunch of uh, hidden documents that expose sort of what really happened and then that's covered over with a public narrative. And that's what's called, the media is going to call it the Pentagon Papers. But there's a guy inside the government that is going to leak these and feeling like he's doing a good deed for the nation because he's going to say what's really going on. You see, up to this point, we actually had a very positive view of our government. We had a very positive perspective on what was taking place. Now, if you remember my message, red, white, and kablooey, yeah, that was one of the moments in 71 that is going to start to undermine this. This is all happening at the same time. So in the early 70s, we're going to start to have a meltdown of perspective where the public is looking at their government going, what? You've betrayed us. So the Pentagon Papers are going to be this uh, basically what is going to happen in the government, the negotiations like with uh, Kennedy, with Johnson in regards to uh, Vietnam. And they're going to, and the public's going to realize they were lied to. Everything that they were told through the media or to the media was actually not what was happening. There was a lot more going on and it's going to aggravate a lot of people. So you'd say, why would Nixon care? Nixon is really going to care about these Pentagon Papers. Because if these Pentagon Papers are leaked, first of all, that sets a precedent that someone could leak government documents and not be penalized. Doesn't that just sound like uh, something that's very common today? But that, this was the first time it had ever happened. And so Nixon is going to retaliate. The paranoid president. So Bob Haldeman, who's the White House chief of staff under Nixon, is going to say to Nixon... 
To the ordinary guy, all this is a bunch of gobbledygook. In other words, most of the Pentagon Papers, no one's going to read them, right? It doesn't make any sense to people. But out of the gobbledygook comes a very clear thing, which is you can't trust the government. You can't believe what they say, and you can't rely on their judgment. And that the implicit infallibility of presidents, which has been an accepted thing in America, is badly hurt by this, because it shows that people do things the president's that people do things the, president's, the president wants to do even though it's wrong, and the president can be wrong. Up to this point, that didn't exist. Isn't that just a weird thought? You've grown up in a generation where your president is sketchy, and you're not exactly sure. It's like, which one is you know, better of the bad options that we have? We could have this bad guy or this bad guy. Well, this guy's less bad, so let's vote for him. This is the generation you guys have grown up in. I remember my first uh, time to vote for president, I had no options on the table. I'm not even going to say the options because that's, uh, that wouldn't be helpful to you, but you could figure out my age and probably do some deducting on it. So I voted for a third party candidate. I was, I was going to be very smart and vote for a third party. I realized in that one, it meant nothing. If you vote for a third party, it's like just throwing your, you know, you know taking a match to your, your ballot. It's like, it means nothing, right? And that's the exact challenge all of us face. So we're having to choose. It's like, pick your poison is the way we feel. The New York Times prepares to publish the papers. So they're leaked. The New York Times has them. In Nixon's office, remember what Haldeman said? It's like, this is going to destroy the entire visage of what people think about government. And it's not just that. You see, Nixon doesn't just con- isn't concerned just about the image of the American government, which does affect him. It's that he has secrets. And if these secrets could be leaked, up to this point, the president could sort of do whatever he wants, and he's sort of bulletproof. Because no one can leak this stuff. It's just, it's like this, the secret service is there. And the secret service of the government, which preserves the integrity or the perceived integrity of the government, even if the government is foul. And that was our system in America. And now suddenly this is being punctured. And so even though the papers being released have nothing to do with Nixon and technically are more about his adversaries than him, he feels the vulnerability. Remember, he's the paranoid president. This must not happen. Henry Kissinger, who was the Secretary of State, says the reason you have to be tough, so tough also, Mr. President, is because if this thing flies in the the New York Times, they're going to do the same to you next year. They're just going to move file cabinets out during the campaign. So Nixon, now, I don't know that I should tell you how I have all of these transcripts, but I have transcripts of intimate talks. That's part of my punchline of the whole thing. That's why I have to be careful how I uh, unveil things. But this is a private transcript that Nixon doesn't know that I'm going to read, right? He doesn't know you're going to read it. And so we're able to hear things, and that's a whole story in and of itself, which is pretty interesting. Nixon says, has the government ever, in the term is, given an injunction to a paper before? Because they're trying, Nixon's like, New York Times has it? Well, just stop them. And it's like, well, President, you can't do that. Uh, and it's, you, well, just stop him. I'm the President of the United States. And uh, he really did think that way, too. I'm the President of the United States. I can do whatever I want. John Mitchell, his Attorney General, says, oh, oh, yes, as if that's a common thing to give an injunction to a paper. Nixon, have we? All right. Well, how do you go about it? You do it sort of low-key? Loki, you call them and send a telegram to confirm it. Well, look, look, as far as the New York Times is concerned, they're our enemies. I think we just ought to do it. We have that transcript, guys. 
Ken Hughes, listen to what Ken Hughes says about that. The president's entire decision-making process for launching an unprecedented First Amendment case takes less than 10 minutes. He did, in less than 10 minutes, he's going to make a decision to take on an unprecedented First Amendment case to shut down a paper from being able to publish something that reveals you know, national important information. So this is a huge battle. And I'm going to skip the battle, even though that's a very interesting uh, story. I mean, they have entire movies made about the battle of the Supreme Court, uh, going to the Supreme Court, Nixon against the Washington Post, against the New York Times. And uh, Nixon loses at the Supreme Court. And the paranoia grows. So the Pentagon Papers are going to be released. And again, they're not about him. So you could say, why are you so paranoid, Mr. President? If you have nothing to hide, this is just your adversaries. Kennedy, yeah, he did some bad things. Yeah, Lyndon Johnson, yeah, can you believe what he said? But you, you're the Republican, you're different. You're not of the same ilk, are you? President Nixon in a personal memorandum to Haldeman. Until further notice, under no circumstances is anyone connected with the White House to give any interview to a member of the staff of the New York Times without my express permission. I want you to enforce this without, of course, showing them this memorandum. <laughs> That's a good one. Uh, a vindictive president. You mess with me, I'll make you pay. I don't know. Unfortunately, when you, when you start studying some of the things we now know about our American presidency, you begin to recognize that it definitely is a power play and that politics in America is a power play. Everything about it is what you know on someone else and how you leverage your power and control. Here's what I want to say just as we get going. I don't want any of this to ever touch your Christianity. This has nothing to do with the way we behave as Christians. So I don't care if these presidents all consider themselves Christians. There is something seriously wrong. If the political mindset seeps into Christianity, it will destroy it. This is not how a believer functions. President Nixon referring to the New York Times, never strike a king unless you kill him. They struck and did not kill. And now we're going to kill them. That is what I will do. If it's the last thing I do in this office, I don't care what it costs. They're going to be killed if I can kill them. Okay, now I have so many more quotes that could go along with this. I'm just doing a skim milk version. All I'm saying is, guys, I don't want you to grow up to be like Richard Nixon. But I could say that probably about any president uh, that is before us. There is something very unsavory uh, that has crept into American politics. The Nixon plan, make the New York Times pay, we just saw that one, and uncover the secret documents that frame Lyndon Johnson as the chief problem in all of this drama. See, what, what Nixon is trying to do, just like all politicians do, is trying to prepare for the day of rain in the future, because if something gets exposed on him, he needs to be able to thrust the attention elsewhere. So what he wants to do with some of his mistakes with Vietnam, especially in the 68 election, which is one he's very concerned about, but there's others. He has a little collection of uh, unsavory acts that he has participated in that could get exposed, especially since Lyndon Johnson seems to have it in for him. So he has it in for Lyndon Johnson. So he knows that Lyndon Johnson has participated in some unsavory things. So he, has, he wants to get some documents. And if he can get these documents, then they could be a lever or they could be an insurance policy for him, just in case it starts to rain. 
So President Nixon captured on the Oval Office tape, Bob Haldeman, oh, he said, Bob, now you remember Houston's plan? Implement it. I mean, I want it implemented on, the, on a thievery basis. And then he's going to curse. Uh, there's a lot of cursing in Nixon's dialogue. Uh, get in and get those files. Blow the safe and get it. So now this isn't Watergate. Ironically, this is before Watergate. Okay, what you're gonna, Watergate is a theft, actually. That's what it's based on, is a theft. But what we see in this is that Nixon is authorizing, even if he didn't authorize Watergate, which is one of the great debates over time, he's obviously authorizing people to go in and be thieves and to blow up things and grab documents. He's like, just get it. He's like, well, Mr. President, that would be like breaking and entering. I don't care. I'm the president. Do it. I authorize it. Sort of like, hey, I'm the executive, you know, highest executive, the one who enforces the law, right? So I'm going to enforce this. President Nixon, we have to develop now a program, a program for leaking out information, for destroying these people in the papers. Let's have a little fun. We're up against an enemy, a conspiracy. They're using any means. We're going to use any means. Is that clear? The enemies list. So Nixon is famous for his enemies list. This poor guy. I mean, poor Nixon. I mean, I actually feel sort of bad for him because all these other presidents have gotten away with this and Nixon is, I mean, everything's just like on full display. Everything, every conversation he had is like transcribed. I mean, it's like, oh, this is, this is really hard. So I, I feel for the guy. But I mean, he, he did it to himself. You have to admit that. But he has an enemies list that he is going to create. So he gets into the presidency and one of the first things he's going to do is detail all the people he wants to get back at. Okay, guys, uh, look at this. It says the enemies list. Everyone has one, right? No, 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 no. We're not supposed to have an enemies list. This is not healthy. Guys, if you're a Christian, the worst thing you could ever have is an enemies list. I mean, could you? his entire staff is sitting around participating in the enemies list. I mean, Chuck Colson, Chuck Colson, what are you doing in that room? Chuck Colson, who's going to be, he's going to end up in prison, by the way, after all this and come to Christ. Uh, so he didn't know Christ. That's why he's in the room. But, you know, good old Chuck is even in the room and he's leading this whole thing of creating the enemies list. It's like, Chucky, what are you up to? So here we have the, I just have the, the cover sheet for the enemies list. This is very interesting. I, I, I don't have all the enemies. He, has, he had like, oh, it was like 20 was, were his chief enemies. Uh, and then he has hundreds in addition to that, that he is going to penalize. He's going to sick the IRS on them. He is going to do whatever he can to make them miserable. So here it is. Confidential memorandum. Subject, dealing with our political enemies. This memorandum addresses the matter of how we caught can, not con, even though con probably has a lot to do with it too. How we can maximize the fact of our incumbency in dealing with persons known to be active in their opposition to our administration. Stated a bit more bluntly, how we can use the available federal machinery to <clears throat> destroy our political enemies. After reviewing this matter with a number of persons possessed of expertise in the field, I've concluded that we do not need an elaborate mechanism or game plan. Rather, we need a good project coordinator and full support for the project. In brief, the system would work as follows. Key members of the staff could be requested to inform us as to who they feel we should, be, we should be giving a hard time. The project coordinator should then determine what sort of dealings these individuals have with the federal government and how we can best destroy them. For example, grant availability, 
Grant availability, like the grants that they're receiving, cut that off. Federal contracts, cut them off. Litigation, you know, bring them into court and tie them up, when, tie their time and their attentions and their focus up in court or prosecution. Uh, the, then the project coordinator then should have access to and the full support of the top officials of the agency or department in proceeding to deal with the individual. Then they're going to list in this memorandum 20 names, chief names out of the entire country of people that they want to destroy, like totally destroy and devastate. Some of them are leaders of newspapers, like Paul Newman is one of them, the actor. And so Paul Newman still, still considers it one of the greatest honor in his life to be listed as one of Nixon's enemies. Uh, so the way that all these enemies handled it was quite interesting too. Because it was publicly revealed, guys, while he was in the presidency, this is gonna be published in the paper. How embarrassing is that, right? So in steps the plumbers. So the plumbers are part of a committee that was the committee to reelect the president. It was actually CRP, but then everyone that uh, in history is going to call them the creeps, okay? And that's not actually a bad title for them. Uh, so what, the reason they're called the plumbers is they deal with leaks. The whole point is Nixon is up for re-election. I know you're thinking, wait a minute, we just went four years? Yeah, we just went four years. He was elected and he survived. And he's been covering up a lot, doing a lot of thievery, a lot of, a lot of bad stuff in this whole time. And now he just wants to get reelected. And so the creeps come in. And to get reelected, he recognizes he needs to have as much uh, on his enemy as he can. And he is going to, you know, he's going to bring in these guys and they're going to make decisions that he's, of course, going to say, I had nothing to do with uh, that. The plumber's head honcho, his name is G. Gordon Liddy. And that guy has quite the mustache. Uh, but uh, G. Gordon Liddy is ex-FBI, and he is one sharp character, and he's really good at destroying people. That's why he's being brought in. And so May 28th, 1972, Liddy's team breaks into the Democratic National Committee headquarters at the Watergate Complex in Washington, D.C. for the first time, bugging the telephones of staffers. So they're going to listen in. Okay, they're going to see what the Democratic National Committee is doing, and, you know, hey, you know, he's the president, and he has his, you know, if he's going to get reelected, he needs to be on top of his game, he needs to be sharp, he needs to know what he's up against. There's a problem, the bugs don't appear to be working. So this one problem is going to create what we know as Watergate, right here, because they're not just going to go in the first time, they're going to go in a second time. And when they go in the second time, <clears throat> these burglars as what they're called, there's five of them, are going to come in and they're going to put tape on the door and so that when it closes, it doesn't make any noise, it doesn't make a snap, and it doesn't lock, right? And so they're in there doing their thing, they're almost done, and security guard's going to come around and he's going to see tape on the door. So what is, what is that? And so he's going to call the police, and the police are going to show up right as the burglars are exiting, and they have all the evidence on them. However, it has nothing to do with Nixon has nothing to do with G. Gordon Liddy, even. It's just five burglars in the Democratic National Convention uh, facility at Watergate. It's like, what are they doing? June 17th, 1972. Uh, so this is the date when Liddy breaks, Liddy's team breaks in again. This time they are caught. So at first, it's not even that big of a deal. It's just strange. These five burglars are all from Cuba. It's like, what are they up to? 
And so two Washington Post uh, guys are actually sent by the Washington Post to at least be at the hearing just to figure out what's going on because it doesn't sound that big. And these guys even that are assigned to it are sort of complaining, uh, groaning about the fact that they got this low budget assignment. And something in that court case and even in the hearing is going to cause them to sort of get that eyebrow to go up. It's like, hmm, it seems like there's something more here. And that's going to lead to what we know as the Watergate scandal. The Washington Post is going to be the one that un uncovers it. I'm not going to focus on that part of it. That's the classic part to focus on. I'm going to focus in a different angle on the president's own team. So I'm going to introduce you to John Dean. I'm going to call him Nixon's patsy. So because patsy is not the most normal word, there's John Dean, by the way, I'm going to define a patsy. A patsy is a gullible person that takes the blame for someone else's misdeeds. And so it's always nice to have a patsy, especially if you're a president and you're doing bad things. It's always good to have someone that you can stick it on. And so John Dean is sort of the classic character in this story for to be the patsy. I'm not going to try and defend John Dean and say that he's some good guy, I'm just saying he's sort of like us. So in this storyline, I'm going to call us John Dean. I know some of you, especially the ladies in here, is like, excuse me, I'm John Dean. But you have to just work with me on this, that I feel like he represents us fairly well in this storyline. Because we're in cahoots with something evil. We're in cahoots with something corrupt. And sometimes we don't know it, but then sometimes we do know it, but we don't know how to get out. So the devil's agenda in your life to make you his patsy, to be the gullible person that ends up taking the blame and the punishment for his crimes. Isn't that an interesting description uh, of what Christianity, what, what not, no, what not, that's not what Christianity is, what life as a human is, where the enemy is up to no good in this world. And he brings us into his agenda and even though he's the great conspirator behind our demise, we end up getting the punishment for all of his crimes. Now, I'm not, not saying he's not going to be punished. I'm just saying we're sharing in it. We're going down with him. And so often that we end up doing things in this world that he's behind the scenes chuckling about. Meanwhile, we're miserable. And we're experiencing the real world ramifications for his nonsense. And that's a great description of what we walk through in this life. August 30th, 1972. Nixon announces that John Dean has completed an internal investigation into the Watergate break-in and has found no evidence of White House involvement. So who did the investigation to see that the White House was not involved? John Dean. So John Dean is the one doing all the studies. I mean, obviously, John Dean's a trustworthy character, right? He, he hasn't found anything uh, amiss. And so John Dean is the one. We're taking his word for it. October 10th, 1972, the Washington Post reports that the FBI had made connections between Nixon's aides and the Watergate break-in. So this is when you're going to see, you know, fur start to fly all over the place. And Nixon doesn't like it because you're going to have... What started out as a burglary suddenly is going to start to get tied to uh, Nixon's aides. Uh, and Nixon's like, I have nothing to do with this. You know, what, what's going on here? What are we talking? Watergate? What, where's that? And so he has nothing to do with it, and he's immediately trying to shove it somewhere else. And meanwhile, Nixon is reelected in a landslide victory. So remember, this is October 10th, and this is right before Super Tuesday. 
So you could almost feel the political winds in this one. It's like, oh yeah, right before the election, you try and do that. But Nixon had such a huge lead. He's going to win in a, in a landslide. And there's really no momentum behind these accusations yet. So even amidst some of these low-level accusations, he, he wins and wins big. So March 21st, 1973, John Dean and Nixon discuss how to pay the Watergate bribers as much as $1 million in cash to continue the cover-up. So they're paying these burglars big dollars so that they would stay silent and not at all acknowledge that they're associated with something more. So John Dean, right at a critical time uh, in this whole process, I think this is April 15th of 1973, we have a cancer, he's talking to the president, within, close to the presidency that's growing. And so he's, he's beginning to feel like this is coming in on us. March 23, 1973, one of the Watergate burglars confesses that he was working for someone, up, someone much higher up. The conspiracy begins to unravel. One of the burglars, remember one of those guys we were paying off? Yeah, he starts talking. I mean, come on, what's the good of money if it can't silence someone? Being John Dean. Okay, now I want you to put yourself in this situation. It's not fun being John Dean in this because John Dean is beginning to recognize that certain things are happening that are all causing all the arrows to point at him as if he's masterminded something. And it's like he's looking around and first of all, Nixon asked him to write down an entire summary of all the things that had happened. And as he was away beginning to do that, he began to recognize to write down everything that happened shows that he was complicit and he was a part and it would even make him look like he was orchestrating it because he was always the one that had to do it. And so, yeah, I did this. I told this person, I paid this person. It's like, wait a minute, how come I'm in the center of this whole drama? And so he never finishes that project. Being John Dean is a rough place to be because the most powerful man in the world at the time is your boss. And he has the puppet strings on you. I mean, what are your options? History.com says, Dean was Nixon's White House counsel on June 17, 1972, the night burglars broke into Democratic National Committee headquarters at the Watergate Complex in Washington, D.C. He had no prior knowledge of the break-in or the White House's involvement. Yet over the next several months, Dean, Dean became, as he put it, the desk officer for the Watergate cover-up. So Dean didn't hatch the plan, didn't oversee the plan, had nothing to do with the plan, didn't know about the plan. And yet now because he's the one helping implement the cover-up for the plan, he's the one that is going to look as if he's the mastermind behind it. James D. Robinault said, everybody kind of went through John Dean. He did things like facilitate payment to the people who had been arrested to keep them quiet, which was an obstruction of justice because they were trying to keep witnesses from honestly and fully testifying before a grand jury about what had happened. After the 72 re-election, one of the burglars called somebody in the White House and just said, we're keeping quiet because of the money that we're getting. And then it just hit John Dean right in the face. It's like he didn't even fully get it until 72. Now he's in the thick of it and he's recognizing that he's participating in a cover-up. And so just imagine that, you know, for you. When you recognize you've been going along and you've been doing your sinning, you know, and you didn't quite understand that you were a puppet in the enemy's scheme. And now you don't know how to get out because you could wish to get out. You ever had that with your sin? I wish to get out of my sin, but I don't, I can't. It's more powerful than I am. The power of sin in the flesh 
is greater than the human will to escape it. Very frustrating, guys. And that's where the power of the gospel comes in. But if you don't know the power of the gospel, that's a fairly helpless state to be in, where you recognize, I want freedom, but I don't have the capacity to get freedom. And I could say, welcome to John Dean's world. John Dean's conscience wakes up. For every single one of us, we have a similar thing. Have you ever had it where you're, you're living in a, in a manner that you even know is wrong, but you're not necessarily feeling it at a deep level that it's wrong? Have you ever had that where it's like intellectually, yes, that's wrong, but you're not cut to the heart. You haven't had a brokenness within to say, what's happened to my life? What am I doing this for? Lord, help Rescue me from this deadness. I want to feel it. And if you ever start feeling it and you're broken over your sin, technically, even though that's probably considered by you a very low moment in your life, it's a very significant and blessed moment in your life. If I've ever, you know, when I ever run into someone who's in that state, I always like have a big smile on my face. I pat him on the back. I go, praise God, you're in a wonderful place. And like John Dean feeling convicted over the fact they've been a part of a grand conspiracy. And I was like, oh, praise God. <laughs> praise God, you've awakened. All of Nixon's aides, if you were to talk to them now, any one of them that's still alive is going to say, yeah, I, I was so blind when I was in that. Because they're in a momentum. That's the president of the United States. They're just showing patriotism by submitting to the president. I mean, can't you understand that? I mean, that's just Americanism up to this point. You don't question your president. It's sort of like the Pope. It's just the president is right. The president is a good man. The president is the voice of the people. The president is the will of the people. If he wants to do this, then by all means, let's do it. And then one day you awaken and say, but what the president is asking me to do is wrong. Now what do you do? The way I'm living is incorrect. This decision is the wrong direction for my life. John Dean's conscience wakes up. History.com says, when Dean realized that he was implicated in an illegal cover-up, he didn't do the right thing immediately. At first, he shredded incriminating files. You ever had that, uh, where the first thing you do is try and cover up, even though now you know it's wrong, but then you try and like cover it up, hoping that will solve it. And yet, that doesn't solve it, guys. The old you know, John Dean shred the papers routine doesn't actually work. John Dean recognizes that he is being set up as the fall guy, the patsy. So he's starting to see through something. Even though it's sort of vaporous, he senses that it's all coming down on him. That the president of the United States, as great of a man as he is, and John Dean has always really admired him, suddenly seems to be putting all of his activities on John. What to do, what to do. To stand with Nixon is to die. To stand against Nixon is to die. To stand with Nixon is to die doing something wrong. To stand against Nixon is to die doing something right. So what do you choose to do? You see, the same thing can happen for all of us, where we recognize that to keep going in the direction we're going leads to destruction. But to forsake that could mean dying on a cross, could mean imprisonments. I mean, could mean we lose our reputation, could mean we lose all the resource we have. In other words, it's a certain, it's another form of death. It's a, 
It's a way of dying even in this world to the things that we always had an ambition for. And then, but to stand with Nixon, to continue walking in this corruption is to die doing something wrong. Whereas to stop right now and choose to go in a different direction, yes, it may cause havoc in our life, and yes, we may lose it all, but we could at least die doing something right. Being John Dean. You see, technically, this is what all of us have been wrestling with. If you're at Ellerslie, you've been going through an entire semester of this very thing, where there's part of you that wants to hold on to the corrupt Nixon uh, regime because that's been security. And maybe it won't fall to pieces. Maybe they won't figure this out. Maybe I'll somehow make it through. But then the more you go on, you're like, eh, it's not going to last. I need to get out. But if I get out, then I'm going into this other direction that I don't fully know and understand. Abandonment to Jesus Christ, submission to whatever he wants. Ah, that's scary in a different way. And that could mean rejection of this culture, rejection from my family, all sorts of things that... I don't know what the ultimate consequence for that is, but it sounds grave. But at least I would be doing that which is right. And I would be siding with the truth instead of siding with a lie. Here's the day that every one of us needs in our life. You know, we each have a marker in our life. Some of you have a defined marker like I have, February 2nd, 1990. Defined marker in my life where I am going to choose to side against Nixon. And that's sort of hard. Like John Dean's way of doing it is sort of like my way of doing it where, yeah, I wrote a journal entry, but it's not like I walked into the middle of my college campus and started shouting the truth of Jesus. It was a silent shift. That's how most of us have it. It's a silent shift where it starts. And for John Dean, it's going to start in a silent shift, but he's going to make a decision that he's going to start doing that, which is right. And he's going to side against Nixon, even though Nixon doesn't know it. He's still working for Nixon. That's scary, right? Uh, April 6, 1973, the day John Dean silently switches sides. So I'm showing you that April 6, April 30th, there's 24 days in there. Nixon is going to fire John Dean and put him on his enemies list. (laughs) You You don't want to be on Nixon's enemies list. And guess who just made it there? Oh, no, John Dean, you knew better, John. Didn't you know that the guy that you're siding against is, you know, going to put you on that enemies list? Oh, yeah, he knew it. He knew it. But do you just keep going in the wrong direction? Are you willing to risk Nixon's enemies list? Are you willing to risk it and go in the right direction? Ah, that's a scary one. The Watergate trial. John Dean is in a very uncomfortable place. He's going to be asked to testify before Congress about all that he knows. What do you say? Nixon's expecting him to say the party line. You know, he's trained. He has his bullet points. He knows what his talking points are, what he knows what not to say and what to say. Nixon doesn't know that there's been a silent shift. So there's John Dean. It's one of the biggest events. I know, even though some of us don't know about the trial or the testimony of John Dean, is one of the biggest events in American history. Isn't that a funny statement? So little did you know that when you became John Dean today, you're in the center of American history. You're a very important person, guys. James D. Robinault said this, there are a few times in American history where the entire country is focused on one television event. One of them was the Kennedy assassination. One of them was the moon landing. One of them was 9-11. And the other is John Dean's testimony. It was, the, it was that important and that significant. Of course, we might want to throw in O.J. Simpson's trial. 
But yeah, I mean, as awkward as that is, some of the things that we have focused on as a country are not that important or is seemingly not that important. The odd memory. So we have John Dean, who's in a very precarious position because what does he have to testify? He can say what is true, right? But then the president of the United States can just say that's a lie. And remember, up to this point, the president is the tr most trustworthy character in the country. So if you're going to take someone's word, whose word are you going to take? You're going to take John Dean, who looks like he's trying to save himself? Or are you going to take the president of the United States, who is obviously, who's lived publicly for decades before the people? Nixon is a well-known character in Washington, well-known character the nation over the world over. And when he says, look, I didn't do this, you just take him at his word right? And so John Dean's in a tough, tough situation. And he's going to have an odd memory that I'm going to replay here for us. So this is, this is going to happen before he's testifying. And we happen to have it, you know, in a transcript form, strangely enough. Nixon, awkwardly to Dean, you know, when I told you we could get a million dollars to continue to pay the convicted burglars to remain silent, I, I was just kidding. Nixon, standing up from his chair and walking over to a corner of his office, whispered, I was wrong to promise clemency for Hunt when I spoke with Chuck Colson, wasn't I? Dean says, yeah, yes, Mr. President, that would be considered an obstruction of justice. History.com says it this way. Dean thought it was very weird that Nixon had moved to a different part. That looks funny. Different part of the room and whispered that question. And he wondered if Nixon had done so because he was secretly taping the conversation. So this is going to come into his mind in the middle of this hearing where he's going to have this odd memory of this odd behavior of Nixon where he's going to be talking and he's going to walk to a different part of the room as if he was positioning his voice to say something for someone else to hear. And that's going to come into his mind as he's walking through this. Because right now, Dean's in a difficult position because it's Dean's word against the president's word. It's not looking good for the patsy. President Nixon is going to have his famous speech. I don't know if you've ever heard this speech. Let me just say this, and I want to say this to the television audience. I have made my mistakes, but in all my years of public life, I have never profited, never profited from public service. I have earned every cent, and in all my years of public life, I have never obstructed justice. And I think, too, that I could say that in my years of public life that I welcome this kind of examination because people have got to know whether or not their president is a crook. Well, I am not a crook. I have earned everything I have got. Okay, uh, famous speech. Now, in light of all that we know, that's a very embarrassing speech. The presidential trust, it's always been there. America's president tells the truth and does that which is right. Doesn't he? John Dean, key moment in history, in American history. I don't know if a tape exists, but if it does exist, I think this committee should have that tape because it would corroborate many of the things this committee has asked me. So John Dean is a voice crying in the wilderness against this political machine. And this political machine is calling him a liar. And then somehow the idea of a tape comes up and he says, I don't know if it exists. And then he's thinking about this odd memory, but if it does exist, you need to find that. And then... <clears throat> They're going to ask, of course, the Nixon administration if they have tapes. Have they been taping something? No, no we, don't, we don't have tapes. 
History.com. It was just a hunch that John Dean had, but it led to a bombshell discovery. A few weeks later, Senate investigators asked presidential aide Alexander Butterfield if he knew about any such tapes. And they couldn't have picked a better person to question. Not only was Butterfield one of only a few people who knew about the taping system, he was actually the person who helped the Secret Service to install it at Nixon's request. Anthony Butterfield, famous uh, conversation here. They ask him, is there a taping system in the White House? He says, you can almost feel him breaking too. We could have called you uh, Anthony Butterfield. I'm sorry you asked, but yes, there was a taping system that taped all presidential conversations. All presidential conversations, not just in the Oval Office, Camp David. He had it like four different spots secretly. No one else knew, which means we have all his conversations. Wherever he was, he was probably taping it for a different motive, right? As leverage, whatever it was. I, don't, I can't speak for, for Nixon on this. But what that's going to mean in all of this is his downfall. That which is in secret will be exposed. Will you hold on to the lie or let the lie be exposed? You know, for each of us, there's a taping system. Whether we like it or not, every word is being measured. Every word matters. Every single word we speak has weight to it. When we know that every word will be exposed, if you were to just look at your life as sort of being in Nixon's Oval Office and every conversation you have will be exposed and will be given to the Washington Post and the New York Times, who seem to have it in for you is the way you'd say it if you're Nixon. They don't like him, they want him destroyed, and I wouldn't even argue that. However, you don't want all of those secrets to just be brought to the surface, do you? See, the way we live as believers is we just know that up front. And we say, I want every word I speak, even when I don't think anyone's listening, to be such a word that even if they were listening, I would be representing the kingdom of heaven if they did listen in. Lies always make their way to the surface. There's just certain things, like if you get something you know, stuck in your skin, like from an accident, a uh, car accident from 20 years ago, uh, and you go through a cleansing process in your life, sometimes you'll even have glass come through your skin. It's just like it all comes out. It doesn't belong there, right? It needs to come out. Lies always make their way to the surface. They just do. And if any of you have ever sort of dealt in lies, you remember those lies that have come to the surface in the most inopportune times. Uh, and we have a, you know, a story in the younger years of some of our kids where they snuck some uh, candy. You know, we had a bowl of candy for these people coming to our house on October 31st. Won't even dignify that holiday, right? Uh, by naming it. And uh, so we had it in some part of the house and I, like, I hid it in one of my drawers because I didn't know where to put it that night. And it was one of the following days that it, a wrapper came up in the toilet. Uh, it was flushed but didn't quite make it. It's like that type of a thing with a floating Milky Way wrapper is what that one was where something that is intended to be flushed doesn't quite make it because God's like holding on to it because he loves you. And it, he won't let that go down so that it can be exposed. Isn't that an interesting thought that God actually loves us too much to allow the Milky Way wrapper to always be flushed, but that he actually wants us to be freed from this. 
Time and time again, even if we continue in our lies, he will continue to show us the mercy of exposing it. Ephesians 5, 11 through 14, and have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness, but rather expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of those things which are done by them in secret. But all things that are exposed are made manifest by the light. For whatever makes manifest is light. Therefore, he says, awake you who sleep, arise from the dead, and Christ will give you light. August 9th, 1974, the most powerful man in the world is broken. The only president in the United States history to resign office. He is going to be broken. And at, there are certain points in this story, if you know more about the story, where you would say there's no way this man could be broken. I mean, he is still the most powerful man, and he's still controlling the narrative. He's still steering the ship. However, when those tapes are exposed, it exposes all that is in the darkness. And you, he can say all he wants, but it's on tape now. Now we have pages, stacks and stacks of transcripts. Now, I don't know who in the world wants to read those, but literally we have all the transcripts of this man that you can listen in on, you can read, and you can understand what was in darkness. The responsibility of leadership. I'm going to call this the unspoken, unwritten covenant of the leader. Now, that's somewhat misleading because there is something spoken and written, and it's in the Word of God. But even in culture, outside of the text of Scripture, there is an unspoken, unwritten covenant that a leader has with those that are following him. And we, we have had it in this country ever since the beginning that one we elect to represent us will have our best interests at heart. Not his best interests or her best interests, but our best interests as a people. So listen, this is just me attempting to capture this. This is sort of the unwritten, unspoken covenant that a leader is saying to their followers. To the best of my ability, I will direct your course. To the best of my understanding, I will seek to preserve you from harm. Though I may not speak everything I know to be true, what I will speak to you will be truthful. You know the difference between speaking everything you know? As a leader, sometimes you need to know things that others shouldn't know. Not because it's, you know, you're trying to cover up something, but because it's actually for their safety that they don't know something. So it's not that everything you know you need to speak, it's that everything you do speak will be truthful. I will, live, I will seek to live in purity and sound judgment and in integrity. I'll remove any behavior or dependency in my life that might compromise my judgment, my purity, and my integrity. So a leader is willing to give up the normal behaviors of men, the normal delights of men, so that his judgment would never be impaired. In other words, this guy over here might be able to drink alcohol. The leader shouldn't, lest he impair his judgment at a moment of need. It's just a concept, just an illustration. I'll remove any behavior. Oh, I just read that one. I will suffer personal harm, endure privations, tortures, and death before I would willfully injure those I'm given the privilege to lead. And any of you that have ever studied great leadership, a great leader will stand in front and take a bullet to preserve those that are under his care. I just described a husband over a wife. I just described a father over his children. I just described a pastor over his church. I just described a president over his people. Doesn't matter which rank or level of that leadership it is, this is the responsibility. When my kids are growing up, I don't need to say these exact words to them for them to know that it's implicitly understood that that is my responsibility. 
And when a husband or a father violates that, it wounds and it injures the children to a point where some of those children can never recover, to the point where those children oftentimes will go off and wayward because of that trauma in their life because their head failed. That is a deep thing. It's a big thing when a head fails. So think about the trauma our country is going through. 1914 to 1974, when I say this is a period of time which is defining the nature of our country, it's the soil from which we have sprung. Our modern American system has sprung. We've had a wound to the head. And we, have la we lack trust and confidence in our leadership. Well, you could say that all through all the ranks of leadership in America. Okay, you talk about husbands, fathers, pastors, I wish I didn't need to mention pastors in that list, but pastors, I'll name it twice, where that which has had a trust has broken it to the point where there's so much injury in our country that there is a strong pull away from Judeo-Christianity as the answer for our country, which is exactly what was happening in the 60s here because that injury had already started and then it is gonna come to full scale in the revelations of what the FBI is doing and the revelation of what the White House is doing. The Pentagon Papers through Watergate is like startling to a nation's soul. So we're gonna go back in time and this is sort of how I'm gonna wrap up this series. If you go to episode 14 in this series, it's called Standing with Joe, which I would say is possibly it's hard to say what is the most important message in this entire series, but I would say the first one, the 14th, or maybe this one. It's like they're, they're very, very important in the understanding of the whole. But the famine in Israel, it's a long, long time ago, just like Watergate. Now, some of you don't like the fact that I call it a long, long time ago because you were alive and you're like, hey, 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 take that back. However, it is. So to most of you, it's, it just sounds like a, some foreign thing, like World War II. World War I, maybe I should say that. That gets us, it, all of us out of it, right? It just sounds way, way back there. And so does this story. It's a famine in Israel, 2 Samuel 21.1. And there was a famine in the days of David for three years, year after year. And David inquired of the Lord, and the Lord answered, it is because of Saul and his bloodthirsty house because he killed the Gibeonites. It's an odd thing. David is experiencing a famine in his land because of what a previous leader did. Isn't that just an odd thing? Just sort of ponder that for a second. I mean, by the fact that Saul is dead, shouldn't that just go away? And yet it was a na national sin, which is why it progresses. And the impact of it is progressing even into David's reign. And David is a good king. He's doing that which is right in the eyes of the Lord. And yet his kingdom is experiencing what we could call a... He's, it's a curse or it's a, it's a burden that he has, but it's not an exceptionally large one. It's just a drought. And at the first year of the drought, you think the rain's going to come the next year and it doesn't. So, oh, it'll come the next year, but then it doesn't. Three straight years of drought is showing that there is some kind of judgment upon this nation. So David is like, what's going on? And he inquires of the Lord and the Lord is ready to answer that question. In this entire series, what do you think I'm doing? I'm inquiring of the Lord, saying, Lord, why are we like this? Most of us in this room have concluded that the reason we're like this is because of a liberal agenda. And I would say, don't be so hasty to come to that conclusion. Especially when you hear the history in these 60 years. Much of what the church did is unacceptable 
to the point of revulsion inside of me. When you have eight to 10 million in the Ku Klux Klan that are wearing crosses, these are church-going people. This would have been the classic picture of the church in America. And I would say unacceptable in our history. And if you want to understand why we have a famine in our land, it's not just because of a liberal agenda. We have a liberal agenda because of a failure in the church. That is a far better way of saying it. For us to own that is critical. For us to absorb that as opposed to repel it and say, oh, it's not in my generation. I have nothing to do with that. And if we continue to do that, the drought continues. The church is weak in America. And I don't want that any longer. I desire to see a shift. So Saul is what is considered the responsible party in this one. And so there's a whole series of events that is going to take place. You can go back to episode 14 and I go into greater detail in that. But who is the Saul in America that is responsible for this violation of national oath? So we look around and we're like, oh, Nixon. And of course, some, some people like Trump. I mean, it's pretty obvious. And then there's others. Biden, it's pretty, look at the corruption we're dealing with. So one interesting thing about our country is we're not just led by kings. We are a different form of government. We actually position our kings there, which means the behavior of the kings, technically we are responsible for. We are a government of the people, by the people, and for the people. Therefore, as far as I can gather, at some level, as the people, we are all a responsible party for what has happened in our nation. I know, I, I, I struggle with knowing exactly how to respond to that too, because like, I, I had nothing to do with that. I'm not the one that did that. I get that. It's a classic response of the white to the black issue. When the blacks are like, yeah, and the white people are doing this, and the, and the white people are like, I have nothing to do with that. I, I love you. What, what, what's the issue here? And a lot of it becomes symbolic. Just like David had no issue with the Gibeonites, but he's going to go to the Gibeonites and he's going to say, what can I do to make this right? He is going to, he, he didn't do it, but he's still going to take it into his own care, his own heart. And he's going to say, okay, we violated you. How can we make this right? Three steps forward. First is to humble ourselves to pray and seek his face. That's actually the, the pattern as we're going to see in Chronicles, and I'm going to read that scripture to finish. But if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves, they will pray and seek my face, they will turn from their wicked ways, then I will heal their land. Number two, we need to bring the Gibeonites under our special care. Who are the Gibeonites? Well, they were slaves in the land of Israel. I want you to just ponder that for a second. They were slaves, yet there was a covenantal agreement between Joshua and them to protect them. We have a covenantal agreement, it's called our Constitution. This is the same thing that's forming what unites us in America. And in that, we actually have supplied for a people group, which if I'm just gonna say the black people, an opportunity to become citizens and to no longer be slaves and to have the protection of our government upon them. And yet that has been violated time and time again. If you go through this series, you'll understand what I mean by that. To the point where I would say this, you may not have done anything, but what I want you to consider doing is adopting them as a special people in your life. 
that I want you to have an extra sensitivity instead of a callousness, instead of a, uh, a disregard, I want you to recognize that in our country's history, we have a convulsion and we have a violation. I don't know how else to make it right other than each of us as individuals beginning to bring the Gibeonites under our special care. And to say, if that's the group that has been violated, but there's a lot more that has been violated. There's a Gibeonites known as unborn children. And there's a massive violation, guys, in our culture. And it's, it doesn't shock me that we are under a judgment and that we are experiencing what we're experiencing. Because though we might have civil rights and we might awaken to one issue, at the same time, we're diminishing another. And I would prefer us as believers not to look at this along political lines. It doesn't matter what the political lines say. You know, if you have to be more liberal to, you know, care about the rights of the black or how they're, they're treated, that's an improper perspective. It's a human being. And skin color means nothing. However, that person has trauma in their past because of our nation. So therefore, what can we do to adopt them as a special people? You know what? I've always adopted Jews as a special people in my soul. Always. I have a special love for them. And so when I hear about anti-Semitism, it never makes any sense to me because I'm like, well, I have a special love for Jews and I'm not saying Jews are behaving all wonderful all the time. I'm just saying I have a special love for them. It has nothing to do with their behavior. Oh, I want to have a special love for those that are mistreated, for those that are abused, for those that have had the rougher road. Hey, that's, that's my special assignment. And then third, to personally live with leadership responsibility according to the unwritten, unspoken covenant, even if this culture doesn't acknowledge us as their leader. As the church, we live with that covenantal relationship with the world around us, that we live in purity and in integrity without having a clouded judgment that whenever you look at our life, you listen to the secret tapes in our life and you hear truth. Truth spoken, truth lived. That's our commission. We cannot shift this in and of ourselves. This is a God project. But for us as the church of Jesus Christ to adopt and to accept our position in it is of the utmost importance. We're going to finish with 2 Chronicles 7, 12 through 15. Solomon has just finished uh, building the temple. Then the Lord appeared to Solomon by night and said to him, I have heard your prayer and have chosen this place for myself as a house of sacrifice. So remember, in the New Testament, you are that temple. And this is the place he has chosen as the house for sacrifice, us. When I shut up heaven and there is no rain or command the locusts to devour the land or send pestilence among my people, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal their land. Now my eyes will be open and my ears attentive to prayer made in this place. We're the secret key to unlocking God's agenda in this earth. We're called the church of Jesus Christ. And when God's people who are called by his name do what they're supposed to do, he does what he promises to do. Father, we need that. We need you to intervene in the storyline of our nation. We need you to bring revival, healing, and wholeness. Lord, I don't know what I can do as a representative of the church, but I'm so sorry, Lord, for how we have poorly represented your name. And I want to seek forgiveness 
for the many crimes that we have committed under the banner of righteousness. Lords, we see the Pharisees of old and we recognize that under the banner of righteousness and truth, they ended up crucifying you. And Lord, we so desperately want to go in the other direction. We want to showcase you to this world. We want your glory to be seen and made manifest. And I pray that we, the church of Jesus Christ, would be known for our love for one another and also our love for the Gibeonites amongst us. Lord, we ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Daily Thunder is a listener-supported production of Ellerslie Discipleship Training. At Ellerslie, we are laboring to rouse the Church of Jesus Christ out of its lethargy and build brave-hearted Christians for such a time as this. Daily Thunder episodes are released every day, Monday through Friday, from our campus in Windsor, Colorado. And our weekly sermon is delivered live at 9 a.m. on Sunday mornings with a delayed live stream available at noon Mountain Time. Go to ellerslie.com forward slash daily to get all the details. Thanks for listening.